Kirby, Ken Starr, the dangers of presidential impeachment, Congressman Mark Green on America's border security, and Jennifer Morse reveals the sexual revolution's victims. That's Trey Corley of the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! I like it when the audience shows up with a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, and they have tonight. And Trey is really rocking it with that hat. That's just for you, sir. Just for me. I'm trying to be cool like you. I'd like to be so cool to wear a hat like that. Maybe one of these weeks I will. Let's just see. But not this week, that's for sure. By the way, this coming week marks the 46th year since the extreme court made up out of thin air an excuse to virtually give unrestricted rights to ending the life of an unborn child in its mother's womb in a savage procedure called abortion. Now, there was a massive march for life in Washington on Friday. And as usual, the media, for the most part, totally ignored it. But since that dark day in American history back in 1973, over 60 million helpless little Americans had their lives ended by butchers masquerading as doctors taking big money for doing a deed that is better suited for the uncivilized Babylonians of ancient times than supposedly enlightened and educated people of the 20th century. Over these 46 years, many things have changed, most dramatically having a better understanding of biology and the science of DNA and when life begins. Science is rarely, as some assert, settled, but in the case of the beginning of a human life, it pretty much is. I mean, we know that at the time when 23 chromosomes from a male and 23 from a female unite at conception, there is a physical consequence that constitutes the creation of a separate and wholly unique life. Now, it shares a combination, but not a replication or a duplication of either the mother or the father. The resulting 46 chromosomes constitute a new person who will have that very DNA for the rest of his or her life. The argument for abortion used to be that once, well, life in the womb was just a clump of random cells. But advanced sonograms have shattered that as laughable nonsense. At 12 weeks before a mother sometimes even realizes that she's pregnant, a preborn baby has brain activity, has a heartbeat, can yawn, has a mouthful of taste buds, and can be legally killed in all 50 states. This shouldn't be a political issue. It isn't. It's bigger than anyone's view of taxes, property rights, use of the military or border walls. It matters that we value every human life or we don't. If there is such a thing as a life that doesn't have intrinsic worth and value, or if some lives just aren't as valuable as others because of arbitrary standards, then we're re-entering the logic of slavery in which we deemed that one person could actually own another person, even determining whether one lived or died. I hope that is disturbing to you. Because with the advance of real science, more Americans than not self-identify as being pro-life, and nearly 75% of Americans at least believe there should be some restrictions on abortion. Abortion providers like Planned Parenthood push hard for the right to end the lives of the unborn. But here's what most people don't realize. The roots of this evil and corrupt enterprise are steeped in harsh racism. The founder of Planned Parenthood was Margaret Sanger. She was an advocate for eugenics, the notion that birth should be the result of very careful breeding of only the finest, and let me add, only the whitest of human beings. She was a blatant racist. She believed black people to be inferior. Many of her efforts to stem pregnancy and birth were focused on the black community. At a time when statues from the Civil War are being torn down because to some people they represent racism, I wanna know why don't the same people demand that not one more dime is spent nor one more moment of recognition to the racist Margaret Sanger or the killing machine that she created? Somebody help me understand. 
I mean, if there's good news to celebrate, it's that abortion numbers are actually dropping from over a million a year to 600,000 a year. But intentionally killing 600,000 babies a year in the U.S. is hardly something to celebrate. It's something to be sorry for, to repent of. Most of all, it's something to stop. I want to make it clear, I'll never vote nor support a candidate for any office who thinks it's okay to dismember a baby. As we pass yet another milestone... As we pass yet another milestone, this time of 46 years since the court ruling, we should pray, speak out, and work to make this the last year that we tolerate such madness. We should never think that any person is disposable or expendable or worthless, because they're not. Well, we have been talking about the term impeachment and what it really means. We sent our cameras out to the streets of Nashville, Tennessee to ask people about impeachment and Presidents Clinton and Trump. Watch this. High crimes and misdemeanors. Everything that President Trump has done. I guess anything that's unconstitutional, I guess. Impeachment is about, you know, somebody who's hoarding too much money or something about that. Try to build a wall and tell the people that Mexico is going to pay for it and then tell the people that they have to pay for it. And people are unemployed for 24 days, now 25. I don't think you should have. I heard that uh, someone was over, like, some kind of a fair... I, I do feel as though he needed to be impeached only because I don't think he represented the United States the, as best as he could. What he did, I don't think had anything to do with being a president. Probably not, although there was grounds. He did lie under oath, yeah. which is perjury. That is a high crime. I don't think he should have been impeached for. I think it's kind of ridiculous and dragged it out, but he violated the law. So House Democrats finally have the power to make their impeachment dreams come true. But my first guest knows what that means, and he's got a little warning for them. We welcome the author of Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation, former independent counsel, Judge Ken Starr. Judge, thank you very much for being with us, and I want to get right to it. We're seeing a lot of parallels between what happened back in the 90s when you were the independent counsel. Now we have an independent counsel, Bob Mueller, who's investigating uh, Donald Trump. D do you sometimes read the news and watch... Uh, what's going on and say, oh boy, they have no idea what they're, what they're getting into. And also a, a Yogi Berra moment or two, deja vu all over again. Uh, and, and you're so right, uh, Governor, I will say this, for the sake of the country, and really for the sake, from their perspective, of their own political party, don't do it. Huh. Uh, uh, impeachment was meant by the founding generation to be reserved for what? Treason bribery and high crimes and misdemeanors. So maybe we'll get into that. But with the requirement of a two-thirds majority in the United States Senate, uh, unless facts come out that uh, we're not anticipating, we don't know it at all, it will depend, of course. We can't be absolute about it. But given what we now know, it would really be folly politically, but that's for others to say. But I will say this, it will be very bad for the country as a country, the United States of America, to march down impeachment alley. Some people are going to be surprised that you said that, but having read your book, which, by the way, cost me a great deal of sleep because I could not stop reading it, <laughs> uh, so I'm a little resentful. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but I, I was somewhat surprised when you said in your book that you thought that uh, having removed Bill Clinton from office would have been a grave, grave error and that you were not in favor of that. And I think many people will say, but you were the independent counsel. So, Governor, uh, in all seriousness, uh, and part of this is the benefit of reflection, but let me make one factual statement. Congress in 1978 put a thumb on the scales in favor of impeachment by passing the independent counsel law. And in that independent counsel law under which I was... Uh, appointed, unlike Bob Mueller, I was required to report to the House of Representatives whenever, hear the magic words, substantial and credible information that we had that an impeachable offense, left undefined, may have been committed. So you don't have to go to law school to say, boy, that's not very much. And so we were required to 
submit to the House of Representatives what we did. Happily, that has been taken away. But I come back to the fundamental point. For those 21 years when we had that statute in which Judge Walsh was appointed, Iran-Contra, I was appointed, Whitewater Lewinsky, there was a congressional thumb on the scales or an arrow pointing in favor of going down impeachment row. We've taken that away because impeachment is just bad for the country. Unless there's a genuine consensus, treason, right, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. And, and now we know by virtue of the experience that the country could not come together on what was proven, namely perjury and obstruction of justice. One of the things that I found very um, refreshing about the book is the candor. It's raw, it's very real, you don't hide anything. Uh, your assessment, and it's a very different assessment of Bill and Hillary, are crystal clear in this book. <clears throat> Share with us what you saw as the fundamental difference between these two personalities that a lot of people may have thought were so similar, but really are not. Yes. Well, <clears throat> for one thing, as we all have seen over the years, uh, Bill is uh, Mr. Empathy, affable, and so forth. Uh, but he is uh, extremely ruthless, but he uses others to carry out the ruthlessness uh, of his approach. Um, Hillary will come directly at you and will challenge you uh, and uh, stick the, da the dagger in your heart as opposed to in your back. Uh, she has such a different personality. It is not a winsome personality. It is not a charming personality. And Governor, you would have seen this, but I heard many stories in Arkansas of, you know, we know Bill, we know what he does and so forth, but that's just Bill. But Hillary, on the other hand, and maybe part of it, Governor, was cultural, right? She wasn't from Arkansas, a little bit of the Wellesley East Coast approach. But I think it really boiled down to her personality, how empathetic she was. And she's a very different person. It doesn't surprise me, frankly, that someone who should have been virtually a walk-in to the Oval Office ended up falling short. So as you look now, 20 some odd years later, I think 22 years later, um, what do you see going on at the FBI and the Justice Department that concerns you? Are, are, is there anything that yes. concerns you? A lot concerns me about the FBI. First, I thought that the firing of Jim Comey was meritorious. Uh, it was overdue. Uh, <clears throat> and when I read Rod Rosenstein's memorandum, it's just rock solid right in terms of why Jim Comey needed to go. So it began with Jim Comey, but now we know Andrew McCabe, the deputy who then became the, uh, the acting uh, director uh, of the FBI, uh, is, well, there are just some serious issues that have apparently even been referred to the criminal division for possible criminal prosecution. And I would just call it the politicization of the FBI leadership, not the rank and file. And when you talk to rank and file agents, as you know, they are as appalled as you are, as morally outraged, because they gave their lives and careers to the bureau that stands for fidelity, bravery, and integrity, the FBI. So it's very upsetting to all of us who love the bureau to see this. There needs to be a house cleaning. And I hope everyone in America who is interested in the intrigues of politics will get your book and read it because it offers some insights that I've not seen in any other book that I've read on politics, and believe me, I've read a few. So, uh, Judge, thank you <laughs> so much for joining us. And I'm going to uh, ask our erstwhile announcer, Keith Bilbrey, to tell everybody where they can get Ken Starr's book. Thanks, Mike. Believe me, you must read Ken Starr's book, Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation. It's not just history. It's a page-turning cautionary tale for our current elected officials. It's available now at Amazon and at all major booksellers. Mike? Well, thank you, Keith. Now, if you enjoyed that great segment with Ken Starr, there is a whole lot more of it on our website. Real simple, go to Huckabee.tv. You can watch the full digital interview with Ken Starr and even more details on the Clinton investigation and the current clamoring for impeachment in Washington. Watch it exclusively at Huckabee.tv. Coming up, author of The Sexual State, Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse and Congressman Mark Green. And later, pro-life advocate Sean Carney on the beginning of the end of abortion. It's all ahead on Huckabee.
my next guest is president of the Ruth Institute and a passionate defender of families and Bible-based moral values. Her new book is called The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and How the Church Was Right All Along. Please welcome Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. Dr. Morse, great to have you here. Thank, Thank you. you. I consider it pretty bold that somebody is out there saying that the biblical mores of sexuality, that marriage is important, family is important, gender is important, um, that, that's, I mean, it, it seems like that ought to be fine, but that's a really dangerous stand to take these days. The truth is the church has been right all along and Jesus knew what he was talking about. Imagine that, the Son when, of God knew that, what he was talking about. I mean, I, I know I believe that. Tell me when you say the church was right all along, what was it right about? Well, the, first of all, when Jesus tried to warn us off about divorce and remarriage, yeah. he totally knew that this was going to be a train wreck, right? That, that, that divorcing for any reason or no reason, which is basically where we mm -hmm. are with no-fault divorce, and then being able to remarry uh, legally, right, because that gives you the right to legally remarry, he knew what that was going to do to children. Mm. He knew how that was going to be so disruptive to the life of children, how the loyalties inside the family would be conflicted and difficult. And despite what they show on TV, step families have a lot of issues that they have to deal with. It's very normal for children to want their own parents, for children to want their mother and father to love each other. And when mom and dad say, you know, honey, we still love you, but we don't love each other anymore. The kids can see through that, right? Because your other yeah. parent is half of who you are, right? And so when your mom and dad say that to you, it's like, gee, this doesn't quite make sense. And yet you're telling the child that uh, there's something wrong with them. You'll get over it, honey. We'll take you for therapy. You know, that's basically the position of society. Well, Jesus knew that wasn't going to work. But the argument is, but if we're happy, why should it be anybody else's concern? And I'm hearing this on Christian campuses. The, look, the idea that all, all you have to do is be happy, um, that's a very uh, weak basis for keeping a marriage alive. That's the line of thought that got us where we are today with the 50% divorce rate, right? That's what, that's what brought us to where we are today. Uh, the, the whole idea of transgenderism, now some people are alleging there are 57 or even 100 different genders. I mean, it's unbelievably confusing. Uh, there, there is clearly something called gen gender dysphoria where people are maybe yes. confused. But why shouldn't we accommodate all these people so that if they want to identify something other than their biological self, where does that lead us? Transgenderism is the assertion that there is no sex of the body, really, and that you can remake yourself however you want. And I think what's behind that is a kind of resentment of the body, right? That we're, we're limited by being a woman or by being a man, and so therefore we can just um, switch it out if we feel like it, you know? Well, Dr. Morris, your book is called The Sexual State, and, and one of the things that I found really stunning, and I've never heard anyone else really discuss this, is that the state is largely, the government largely behind some of these transformations. Yes. So explain what the sexual state is and means and how did we get there? Yes, the sexual, by the sexual state, what I mean is that the, what we call the sexual revolution was orchestrated by elites who captured the power of the state. Hmm. So Margaret Sanger, whom you were speaking about earlier, Margaret Sanger uh, was not content just to go around chatting with people about why they should use birth control. She had a whole legislative plan that included abortion and contraception, but it also included mandatory sterilization. That was part of her plan too. So, uh, um, so and that's just one example. Removing the permanence from marriage, that was done by the state. Redefining gender so that there are not just male and female, that's being done by the state. And it's not it's like there's some groundswell of popular opinion demanding any of these things. None of it. It's all coming from the top down. And that's what we've got to stop talking about religious liberty, if I may say so. It's not just that we want the right to have our crazy beliefs. No, our beliefs are correct and we can prove it. That is stunningly powerful, and nobody is saying it like that. Thank you for doing so. Uh, I'm so grateful to have you on the show, Dr. Morris, and I want to just make sure that everyone gets a copy of your book, The Sexual State. It is a powerful read. And get one for yourself, then get one for your pastor and one for your local government officials. All right, Keith Bilbrey is going to let us know just how we can get that book. Keith? I would be happy to. Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse's book, 
The Sexual State is available now at Amazon and at other top booksellers. Also, follow her Facebook page, The Ruth Institute. Next, Mike takes on news issues from the week with common sense. And Representative Mark Green shoots straight on border security. Then later, we reveal the funny side of the news on In Case You Missed It. Don't go away. Huckabee is coming right back. Now, when you reach out to others through Samaritan's Purse, you're going to be helping provide physical aid to hurting people all over the world. And you'll also be helping people right here at home, all in the name of Jesus. So be sure to call. Or you can visit the Samaritan's Purse website and help make a difference with your financial gift. It is always used with integrity. You'll be glad that you did. It's an organization I'm happy to support regularly. Well, it has been a busy week in the news, and we want to address a few of the stories on your mind with a little straight talk and common sense. It's time for a segment we call Facts of the Matter. Well, this week on MikeHuckabee.com, my website where you can get look at the newsletter I do every day, I looked at the latest blast in the liberals' war on religion, and this time it's aimed at Vice President Mike Pence's wife, Karen Pence. Her unconscionable thought crime? Volunteering as an art teacher at a Christian school. That's right, LGBTQ activists have branded the school homophobic because students are asked not to participate in, support, or condone sexual immorality, homosexual activity, or bisexual activity. Now, this follows the recent pattern of liberals trying to redefine traditional religious beliefs as hatred and discrimination in order to justify the government targeting and eventually even outlawing those views. Huffington Post, the human rights campaign, and other reliable mouthpieces of anti-religious bigotry accused Mrs. Pence of engaging in anti-gay discrimination while holding federal office. Little problem with that, the second lady is a title. It is not an official government position. She can volunteer at any school she wants, just as any religious school can set moral standards for admission. Note that the school policy doesn't ban students for being gay. It expects them not to engage in sexual activities of any kind that are considered sinful in their faith, particularly during art class. I think we could get that. <laughs> now, the mainstream media played along in the religious bigotry against Karen Pence. CNN White House reporter Kate Bennett drew some horse laughs with this indignant tweet on the subject. I quote, so let me get this straight. The second lady of the United States has chosen to work at a school that openly discriminates against LGBT adults and children, end quote. So let me get this straight. A top CNN reporter has never heard of a religious school before. That's what's weird. There is some serious news research for you, um, and I hope that you'll recognize what Karen Pence is doing is what she has every right to do. Also, media liberals never seem to aim snarky criticism at Islamic schools, and they take a far harsher view of homosexuality. That's kind of strange, isn't it? So does Mrs. Pence agree with the Bible on the subject of sin? Since she's a Christian, I guess the answer would be yes. Now, ask if I agree with the ridiculous notion that condemning sin is the same thing as condemning sinners. Anyone should know the answer to that, but if they just took a little time out from reading the Huffington Post and Twitter, and they would actually read the Bible, they might know these things. All right. Now... Let's turn to a couple of questions and thoughts that you had on news stories this week. This one is from Sheila in Nebraska, and she writes that a federal judge ruled that embattled Colorado cake artist Jack Phillips could sue the state for anti-religious bias. The Colorado Civil Rights Commission has constantly harassed him for refusing to create a cake for a same-sex wedding, even though he's declined to create cakes with messages that demean LGBT people, as well as declining to do cakes for those that violate his faith in any way. Now, does this ruling finally mean an end to the CCRC's targeted harassment of him? Sheila, I wish I could say it does, but it doesn't because we're dealing with people on the far left who aren't interested in a rational or common sense point of view. They want to put out of business anyone who disagrees with them. See, I believe that people who disagree with me are free to make their point because I feel like that my point can be made. We both can make 
our points in the marketplace, and we'll let people decide. But if a person has a point of view that they themselves, deep down in their hearts, know is indefensible, it's not that they want to present their point. They want to destroy the point of view of anyone else because they're that uncertain about their own point of view and feel the only way it can stand if it is unchallenged. That's pretty scary, and it's unfortunate. All right, we get this from Tom. He's in Minnesota. He's concerned that one of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's top legislative priorities is the Equality Act, and he says, I truly fear it. He goes on to say that I believe it will politicize the medical treatment of gender dysphoria and could lead to more prosecutions against parents who refuse to aid in the sterilization of their children. Here's his question. Will this legislation call traditional parents to face charges of child abuse and lose custody of their children? Do we want the government ends the sex selection and child rearing business? Of course we don't. And the truth is, if Nancy Pelosi um, had all the power that she wanted and could get it through the House, it would still have to go to the Senate, and uh, there aren't the votes there for it, thank goodness. This is why it's so important to make sure there's some balance. And then the good news is, I'm confident this president would never sign something so ridiculous. But let it be a reminder to you, uh, if both houses of Congress and the White House should be in the hands of those who think like Nancy Pelosi, then yes, it could happen. And that's something we should all be afraid of. Finally, Sully in Ohio had 2020 on his mind when he commented, Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii recently called out colleagues Kamala Harris, Maisie Hirano, for fomenting religious bigotry against a Nebraska judicial nominee, Ryan Boucher, because he's Catholic and he belongs to the Knights of Columbus. So what's your take on her action and will it affect her announced presidential bid in 2020 with fellow Democrats? I applaud uh, Ms. Gabbard for having the courage to say that we shouldn't be discriminating against someone for a federal judge appointment because they're faithful Catholics and happen to belong to the oldest of the Catholic benevolent organizations, in this case, the Knights of Columbus. Now, I'm an evangelical, but I have marched shoulder to shoulder with Knights of Columbus at March for Life year after year after year. I'm not the least bit afraid of them because they believe, as I do, that we need to stand for life and good things, and they provide millions of dollars in benevolence and assistance to poor people. So I don't know why they're so dangerous to some people like Kamala Harris. I think Kamala Harris and Maisie Hirono are far more dangerous to our great republic than the Knights of Columbus and any Catholic judge would ever, ever be. Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts and questions on the issues of our nation and world. Just drop me a line at my two cents at tbn.tv. And hopefully, we're gonna find out what's on your mind. Now until then, that's it for Facts of the Matter. Well, my next guest is a decorated Army flight surgeon. He's a physician, a businessman. He's also the newly elected representative of Tennessee's 7th Congressional District. Here to talk about what is and what isn't happening in Washington, would you please make welcome doctor and congressman, Mark Green. All right, congressman, you've just been there a few weeks, are you saying, what have I done? I want to go home. <laughs> you've, you've heard that about the dog that catches the car? Yes. Yeah, I'm there now. So. I, and you've caught it, and, and you must be wondering, what's going on up here with this n nonsense? I mean, are, are you frustrated already? It's pretty crazy to think that uh, the Democrats who voted for $40 billion worth of border security are now refusing to do so for $5.7 billion just because they don't like the occupant of the White House. It's pretty uh, unconscionable, and it's dangerous. Congressman, are there some Democrats, because I mean, I know a lot of people in Washington, they're, they're really good, decent people. And, and I want to be very clear. I mean, I poke some fun at Nancy Pelosi and some of the leadership, but I've known some of the Democrats in the House and the Senate, many of the Democrat governors, and they're good and decent, honorable, patriotic, God-fearing American sure. people. And, and so we got to be very careful never to say it's all them and none of us, because there's some really lousy Republicans. Um, not that I'm going to name any of them here tonight. <laughs> but what I want to ask you, in, in your private conversations with some of your colleagues on the other side of the aisle, do some of them indicate to you that they would really like to find a solution if they could just get their leadership to try to 
act like they're there to solve a problem. Sure, I mean, there are those, particularly in the freshman class, who were in districts that President Trump won. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're scared, actually, mm. and they wanna, they wanna get to a solution. They want government opened and they want border security. So we're having conversations with people that are, that are very reasonable. You have one of the most incredible resumes I've ever seen of anybody in or out of Congress. And sometimes I'm thinking, you've done way too much to be in Congress. I mean, you, you need to be doing something. I, I hope the president appoints you to the cabinet somewhere. But a lot of people don't know, flight surgeon. Yes. So you've been a combat flight surgeon. You've done that. You ran a multi-million dollar healthcare company. But in your role as a flight surgeon, you were part of the capture of Saddam Hussein and you interviewed him for six hours. First of all, you should get a medal for spending six hours with Saddam Hussein. Uh, well, it was fascinating. I can't even, what was, give us just a, a nutshell of what that was like. Well, he was charming actually. Was he? As you would expect, you know, people ask me, did you have this sort of presence of evil uh -huh. uh, or feel the presence of evil? And no, he was incredibly charming. Um, he started the conversation actually, asked me to take his blood pressure and I was, mm. you know, there you're in a person's face when you're taking yeah. their blood pressure. And he makes the comment, I wish, or when I was a child, I wanted to be a doctor, but politics had too great a hold on my heart. So this uh, the image of the butcher of Baghdad taking the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm started a conversation that huh. lasted about six hours. I can't imagine. What did you guys talk about? Well, I tried to stay and away. And I realize the HIPAA Act would normally, but he <laughs> he's not an American citizen, and he's dead, so yeah. you can go and tell us anything yeah. you want. There was nothing really, <laughs> we didn't talk about his health. Really? Uh, I asked things like, why did you start the Iran-Iraq war? Yeah. Um, did you expect the Americans would respond the way we did during Desert Shield, Desert Storm? He had incredibly cogent answers, some of which are, you know, um, not in any other history books, and that's why I, you know, I wrote a book about it, A Night with Saddam, and uh, it, uh, it was to sort of capture the things that he told me that night. Did he think the U.S. would respond as they did? He did not. He thought we were going to attack much sooner. Huh. And, and his comment was, you know, I couldn't uh, project my lines of communication, which is a military term for resupply, yeah. uh, that long. And it was six months, and we were out of supplies, and then you guys attacked, and it was an easy fight, which I kind of felt like it was going to be an easy fight anyway, but... Yeah, I would think the United States military yeah. against Iraq was probably a, a little bit one-sided, no, yeah. no doubt about it. It should always be an unfair fight, by the way. Your perspective, though, you've had a, a military career, flight surgeon, and then dealing with the war on terror, not at the level of academia, but firsthand. I mean, in a way that even many people in combat never saw. I mean, to talk to the leader of the person that we went there to topple. What perspective now do you bring to Congress that that you hope your colleagues will maybe listen to you about? I think sometimes, particularly folks on the other side of the aisle, have a, a rosy view of, of the world, of the universe. There's no one that wants to hurt us. There are tigers in the world. Yeah. And we need men and women who are willing to train and be equipped to fight those tigers. Uh, I've seen the enemy. I've looked at terrorists in the face, uh, pulled them into helicopters, um, taking care of their health. Mm. Um, there are people out there who hate us. And Americans have always fought tyranny, we will always fight tyranny in the future. And we just gotta make sure that we, we strengthen our military and like I said earlier, make sure it's never a fair fight. When America's sons and daughters go to war, it should never be a fair fight. I love that answer because I don't think we ought to ever send our men and women into combat, but what we don't already know what the outcome's gonna be. Because yes, we know we're gonna give them everything they need to win. You have taken a, a seat in Congress that uh, was formerly occupied by now Senator Marsha Blackburn. Yes. Um, so that is a conservative district, a conservative pro-life seat. It has been for a long time. But as you get to Washington, what do you think are the biggest challenges that you're going to face? Is it the shutdown? Is it the economy, jobs? I mean, where do you see, as a brand new congressman, looking out there and saying, boy, I got to get to work on this? You know, the biggest thing, I think, is the functionality of Congress. I mean, I could talk about debt, government spending, reducing the size of federal government, all those things that, that the folks in my district want to hear, but we, we have to get to a point where we actually can get stuff done. And for years, it's been, let's label people. And I, if I can contribute in any way, I want us to start labeling ideas and stop labeling people. Mm. And if we can, Good. you know, like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, yeah. those guys uh, fought like cats and dogs during the daytime and then they were out, uh, you know, having a scotch together in the evening. Um, we've got to get back to socializing together. You know, I disagree with friends, 
but I don't attack them. I don't vilify them. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that I can make a contribution there. One of the contributions I think a lot of people might expect that you would uh, help make is on health care. It's a big issue yes, for both Democrats and Republicans. And it, it seems like there are points of agreement. Where can we go and help bring about some solutions? And, and let me say, I, I've not, I don't understand why Washington doesn't hand a lot of this back to the states Amen. and let them do the things that they can do as a laboratory of government. But what can you as a congressman help push from a doctor's perspective that would make sense to everybody? Well, Governor, I've been on both sides of the stethoscope. Yeah. Uh, not only have I been a physician and a CEO of a healthcare company, I'm a cancer survivor. Mm. So um, I, I, what really, the problem in healthcare is the, the way we're incentivized. The system is set up to incentivize people or not to shop and to spend, uh, spend. So we've got to reverse the incentives. And I think I can bring some expertise on that. My undergrad degree is in economics. Uh, and I got a medical degree and then run this company. So I've got some ideas to bring and, and hopefully we can reverse the incentives so that people want to shop. I mean, if you ask your doctor today how much it costs to get a knee replacement, he won't even know. Yeah. He can't even tell you. And until we get that back in healthcare, we can't fix healthcare. You know, I really do hope that your colleagues will recognize what a treasure you are, not just Thank to the uh, District of Tennessee, but to the country. The background you bring, the experience and uh, and, and the great spirit that you bring is something that is desperately needed in Washington. I'm so glad that you're nearby. I hope we can call upon you to come up the road and see us often. Yes, sir. Glad to. Thank you very Congressman, much. Congressman, thanks for having you. Congressman, we want to wish you luck in keeping the fire of common sense aflame in the current House. Now, Congressman Mark Green's official website is markgreen.com. House.gov. That's markgreen.house.gov. You can also keep up with him on Twitter at Rep. Mark Green. All right, Keith, why don't you tell us what treasures that we've got in our chest for the rest of the show? Oh, have we got some treasures. You better believe it. Coming up, new stories you won't believe. The Power of Life with Sean Carney and a classic performance of the four top ten with Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. So stay tuned. Well, it is time to consider some news stories that'll make you want to build a wall around yourself and you'll want to end the government shutdown single-handedly, I guarantee you. It's all in a segment that we just call In Case You Missed It. Well, after a recent snowstorm in Petersburg, Kentucky, Cody Lutz and his family decided to build a giant nine-foot-tall snowman in their front yard. They even added the top hat, kind of like the one Trey's wearing tonight. And they named the snowman Frosty. Of course they did. But when Cody returned from work one day, he discovered that someone had driven a truck onto their lawn to destroy Frosty. What a Grinch! But the tire tracks came right up to the snowman and stopped abruptly. Seems the driver didn't know that under Frosty's snowy base was a big old gnarly tree stump. <laughs> yeah, Cody calls it instant karma. He meant to say crushed karma instead. That jerk truck driver didn't even knock his hat off. That's how bad it was. I'll bet Frosty is still laughing over the smashed-in radiator. I mean, you know, snowmen, they really hate radiators, right? Now, I'd love to hear what the guy said at the body shop. Hey, I dented up my truck because I tried to run over a snowman. <laughs> well, we all remember the ridiculous action movie Snakes on a Plane with Samuel L. Jackson. Over in Germany, someone decided to make a Hollywood fantasy a reality. A man was arrested and fined at the airport in Potsdam, Germany, for trying to smuggle a snake onto his flight. Now, we all know that seats are getting more and more narrow, but come on. I mean, German airport security noticed something protruding from his pants. <laughs> hey, it was a boa constrictor, folks, okay? Don't make me stop and pray for you right now. <laughs> Investigators said the passenger didn't have the proper permits to travel with a protected species, so of course, he put the snake in a small bag and hid it in his pants. What anyone would have done, right? <laughs> on the plus side, Tasmanian devils are also on the protected species list. 
At least he didn't try to hide one of those in his pants. <laughs> and at least he didn't succeed and end up next to the woman in Taiwan that had 24 gerbils hidden under her skirt. <laughs> the boa constrictor would have called that the world's best in-flight meal. <laughs> and then turning to gross and yucky news, as if we haven't already had some of that, a giant obstruction made of hardened fat, oil, baby wipes, and other waste dubbed the Fatberg has been found in the sewer of an English town. Please don't confuse this disgusting blob of unusable, unusable material with Prime Minister Theresa May's recent Brexit offering. Two totally different useless things. But like a Democrat spending bill, the enormous clump trapped in the sewers of Sidmouth is 210 feet long. That's long and just as useless. At 210 feet, it means the Fatberg is 42 feet longer than the White House, and it even rivals a string of our president's tweets. <laughs> so there, I got a joke in for the liberals. They'll be happy to see that. <laughs> British wastewater staff say it's going to take about eight weeks to break down the Fatberg. I mean, surely we can get our government shutdown ended faster than that. We're just trying to build a little border security. Shouldn't take eight weeks of shutdown, should it? Well, Andrew Rontree, who's the director of wastewater, says a sewer team is going to use a combination of high water jets, shovels, and pickaxes to attack the Fatberg. The utility company reminds everyone that every wet wipe and drop of oil poured down household drains could cause sewer blockages. In their area, it results in 5.7 million U.S. dollars to tackle sewage blockages, just in that local area. You know, it sounds like if we kept our garbage out of our American sewers, we could use the money we save across the country to use on a little southern border security. <laughs> there you go. Or maybe we could just take the Fatberg and put it on the border. Nobody wants to cross through that. All right, and finally tonight, a few quick shout-outs. A shout-out to Spoon. It's the makers of a spoon and fork that attach to your phone. Think about this, so you can still eat and look at your social media. <laughs> I'm not sure how many people will die of choking, but thumbs up for ingenuity. I mean, like you really do need to eat staring at your phone. What an invention. Also, a shout out to Dennis Miller for blowing the lid off the whole Trump-Russia thing. He asked, quote, do the Dems believe that Trump was born in Russia and sent here, or was he flipped as a teen in military school? Or did he flip himself at age 70 because the communist light bulb went off? Good questions, Dennis. And here's a shout out to Father Matthew P. Schneider for posting this photo of a mother and daughter who are together today, 25 years later, because of mom changing her mind. Friday, they carried those two signs at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. to try and spread the word to other mothers-to-be to choose life and the chance to have an amazing relationship as mother and daughter. That's a good one to kind of close with, huh? Well, that is all the time for In Case You Missed It, but like some deep state mole digging through the National Enquirer in the Star, we read the news. Keith is standing by to let us know what we have left in the show. Keith, take it away. Well, I would love to. Next, find out why science is helping win the battle for life from author Sean Carney. And then it's Motown time with Music City Connection. More Huckabee is 60 seconds away. With so much of the media and government fanatically devoted to protecting abortion, why do abortion rates continue to fall until they're right now at a historically low level? My next guest knows the answer. He's one of the most effective pro-life activists in America, the co-founder of 40 Days for Life program, and the author of the new book, The Beginning of the End of Abortion. Welcome to the show, Sean Carney. Good to be with you. Sean, great having you here. 
Let's get right to the heart of what is 40 Days for Life? Well, 40 Days for Life is very simple. It is a 40-day uh, peaceful prayer vigil in front of abortion facilities, and we've done it now in 769 cities in over Whoa. 50 countries. And so it's peaceful, it's joyful, and it gives those women one last chance to turn around. When you say it's joyful, what do you mean by that? I mean, if you're standing in front of an abortion clinic, uh, I can't imagine what could be joyful about that. You know, nobody grows up wanting an abortion. No abortion doctor goes to medical school to be the best abortion doctor in the history of, of America. But we want to be there uh, to offer the, the love, the mercy, and practical alternatives uh, that we have. Poll numbers show that the reason that more people are pro-life is because younger women are more pro-life than their mothers and their grandmothers. Why is that? It's very true. The pro-life movement at large gets younger by the day. And a lot of that is because of technology. I mean, we have this window into the womb where we can offer uh, an ultrasound, a, a free pregnancy test. And women, 90% of the time they see their baby on an ultrasound, they're gonna choose life. And so it, it's a great, thing for our movement because it does get younger and there has definitely been changes of hearts and minds only in one direction on the abortion issue. Uh, whether it's doctors who have done abortions, the March for Life in Washington is always led by women who have had an abortion. That conversion gate only swings in one direction over the last four decades. Your book is called The Beginning of the End of Abortion. Do you think we will see maybe I hope in my lifetime, but certainly in yours, when abortion no longer happens in this country? Or, or, is that possible? Yes. We, there has been an undercurrent in America that, frankly, it's been a benefit. The media has ignored the pro-life movement, and that has allowed us to go into the grassroots, the most important part of our nation, and change it. And now we see that trickle up into Washington. My lifetime, my children's lifetime, abortion will end in the United States. I would be so thrilled to know that a lot of the things that I've worked for, both politically mm -hmm. and socially, would, would bear fruit, even if it's after I'm gone. It would mean a lot. Now, final question for you. You're a guy. Yeah. I, I mean, the criticism <laughs> Still, is... Yeah. You know, <laughs> so they say but, you can choose that yeah. now, but I don't agree with that. But, but the criticism is... <laughs> <laughs> what what could you know about about what a woman feels and how how then do you lead this movement well i get so many women who have had abortions i've been doing this now 15 years and they say you know where were you yeah 20 years ago uh, i didn't have a man in my life to stand up i i didn't have anybody there where were the people peacefully praying outside when I went in to have my abortion. And it's a very challenging question to us, women and men. You know, a lot of abortions happen because men don't stand up hmm. uh, before, during, or after the abortion. And we do need more men. I get that feedback more uh, from women. Uh, but our campaigns are mainly led at the local level by women, women who have had an abortion. We've had women who have worked in the abortion industry lead 40 Days for Life campaigns. And it's a great joy because we know one thing, half of all the abortions happen on women, mm. and they're, they're unborn women. There are two victims in every abortion, obviously the baby, but also the birth mother, and your ministry, what you're doing, I, I'm just grateful that you're putting your arms around these women and loving them and affirming them. Thank you for doing that. Sean's book, I believe, will change minds and hearts. Once again, it's called The Beginning of the End of Abortion. It's available now at Amazon. You can get signed copies at discount exclusively at 40daysforlife.com. Be sure and follow the author Sean Carney on Twitter. The account is 40 Days for Life. And so now we'll turn it over to Keith and find out what we have coming up. Oh, just wait till you hear about this. Mike straps on his bass guitar. Why? Because he can't help himself. And they're going to perform the great hit, I Can't Help Myself. Trey Corley and the Music City Connection coming up. Well, you know legendary songwriter Lamont Dozier tells a story about how his grandfather would flirt with all the pretty ladies that came to his grandmother's beauty shop. Why not? Lines like, how you doing, sugar pie? Good morning, honey bunch. 
help Lamont Dozier write a 1965 number one song by the Four Tops, I Can't Help Myself. Here now to perform it are vocalist Angela Prim, Governor Huckabee on bass, and Trey Corley, and the Music City Connection. Make them welcome. Yeah. 